Okay, let us pray. Um, Father God, Lord, thank you so much for uh, giving us together to study your word. And Lord, uh, thank you so much that we have your word and uh, help us to understand more and to apply in our lives. Lord, and I pray also for the listeners that they can learn from this discussion, this topic, Father God, about fellowship. Lord, thank you so much in all disciples in Jesus' name. Amen. And we are over halfway through the book of John, the, uh, the first epistle of John. So let's continue in with uh, 1 John 3, uh, verses 10b through 12. So if you remember last time, quite a while ago, two or three weeks, we only did half of verse 10. And that was because in the Greek, there is a bit of a variation. And it's not clear whether or not this is one sentence or two sentences. Uh, when the Greek was originally written, there were no spaces and very few punctuation marks. So all the punctuation marks have been put in by translators. And the, uh, the context seems to call for this being two different verses. The first part of verse 10, dealing with righteousness in the believer. And the second part of verse 10, dealing with love. Now, righteous behavior uh, can be manifest only by a Christian in that it comes from God, but a non-Christian can replicate behavior that looks like righteous behavior. Righteous behavior is benevolent behavior. It's only deemed righteous, however, when it's done through faith in Christ. So although a non-Christian can do the same good actions as a Christian, their works, though they might look the same as the Christian's righteous actions, are done selfishly, self-servingly, and not in faith and not in trust to Christ. And so his deeds are considered filthy rags before the Lord. Just like when a Christian does good deeds, but he doesn't do them through faith and through resting in the Lord, he does them by his own power. These righteous deeds also become filthy works before the Lord, uh, meaning that they are worthless. They don't gain you any reward. Uh, so only a Christian can do works that lead to a reward in heaven. So that's what the first half of, the, of chapter 3 is about, is the foundation of righteousness that a Christian has that they should be living in. However, in the second half, we deal with the love of Christians. Now, this love, as we discussed a few months ago, is love that only Christians can manifest. A non-Christian cannot manifest even these actions of love because these actions of love are deeply intimate within the body of Christ. They are not the, the world's idea of love, but rather it is God's idea of love. So the world has a different definition for love than God does. So we're going to look at that, we're going to look at brotherly love, and then we're going to look at the sad example of Cain and Abel um, as an analogy of not loving a brother. So <clears throat> let us begin with verse 10b through 11. This says, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, 
nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, importantly, we want to remember that our whole book is not about a test for salvation, but a test for fellowship. John uses this phrase, of God, differently than Paul uses it. When Paul says someone is of God, he means born again. But when John does this, he doesn't use it in a context that allows that meaning. So we understand John as using this term of God as meaning living by the power of God. So when someone is not practicing righteousness, they're not resting in the power of God. They're not resting in the promises that God has given to him. So the natural result of this is not loving one's brother. This is the culmination or this is the end. This is the natural end of practicing righteousness that is unto God, is you will also love your brothers. And then John reminds us that this is the same message we've heard from the very beginning. This was even Jesus's message to us, that we are to love one another. Now, interestingly enough, a lot of people have interpreted this not as to love one another, to love the brothers of Christ, but to love everyone. And yes, we are to love everyone. We, we discussed this when, uh, when John told us not to love the world. Well, there is a, an idea of the world that we are not to love, but that doesn't mean that we don't have God's love towards unbelievers. We should be manifesting that love towards unbelievers as well. But this love that God is talking about that we should have towards one another is a very special, a very unique, and a very intimate kind of love that we have in fellowship with the brothers. So when Jesus gives us the command to love God and to love one another, he is speaking to a group of believers. We are to have a love harmony among believers. So it's, uh, although it is true that we should love the world, meaning that we should lead them to Christ, uh, we should love the brothers in a different way because they are already members of the body of Christ. We should have intimate fellowship with them. So in John 13, when Jesus gives this command at the beginning of the upper room discourse, it's important to realize that all saved, um, all saved disciples were there, and the one unsaved disciple had left already before he gave this command. There were no non-Christians, no unbelievers, no unregenerate persons in the group that Jesus gave this command to. It was a command for intimacy between Christian brothers. So Judas had left, we read in verse 29 to 30, for some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him by the things we have need for, for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. Jesus had told him what you have to do, go and do it quickly. So in verse 30, so after receiving the morsel, that is the piece of bread, he went out immediately and it was nighttime. So Judas left the group. Uh, that was in an intimate dinner in the upper room um, before Jesus Christ's crucifixion. Judas left the group. 
In John 17, 12, we see the reason for this when Jesus is praying to God and he is talking about his mission on earth and what he has accomplished. He says, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, that's fellowship again, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. This son of perdition was Judas. He was not born again. He did not believe in Jesus Christ. And this is an important lesson because Judas was a disciple, but he was not a believer. Being a believer and being a disciple is not the same thing. You can be a disciple and not believe, and you can be a disciple and believe. But if you do believe, you might be a disciple or you might not be a disciple. See, discipleship has to do with learning from another person, and that is the only thing that it means. It doesn't have con connotation to uh, deeply held religious devotion. You see, Judas was a student of Jesus Christ. They had intimate fellowship with the 11 because they were born again, because they were saved, because they believed and trusted in Jesus Christ. Judas didn't have that intimate fellowship with them. Um, he did not have eternal life living within him uh, by trusting in the promises of God through Jesus Christ. Uh, so to be a disciple is not the same thing as to be a born-again believer. Yeah. So we see here that Judas is the son of perdition. This comes from the Latin word to lose or to be lost. He was the lost son. He was not a, uh, a believer. He was not found. He didn't find Jesus Christ in his pursuit of self. But we see another man later on in uh, Second Thessalonians, who is also called the son of perdition, and this is the Antichrist. The Antichrist will also be called the son of perdition. And these are the only two men we ever have recorded for us who are actually personally indwelt by Satan. At the time that Judas went to betray Jesus Christ, it says that Satan went into him. Now, Satan is not an omnipresent being. That means he is not in more than one location at any time. Um, but he is the ruler of this world. So naturally, he has a lot more important things to be doing than personally indwelling or possessing people. His demons can do that. His fallen angels do that. But it's only recorded for us that two people will be indwelt by Satan. And that is Judas, when he went to betray Jesus Christ and the Antichrist when he comes against God's people during the tribulation. So it is important to realize that when Jesus gave the command to love one another, he was speaking to his 11 believing disciples. And this was his command. He says, a new commandment I give to you. Remember when John gives us this commandment, he says, I'm not giving you a new commandment. That's because when Jesus gave it, it was new. But when John is giving it, it's not new. They should know this command. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
So this is talking about deeper fellowship. Remember, a believer who becomes a disciple is growing in their understanding of Christ through the Spirit. An unbeliever who becomes a disciple is basically racking up credit against their account because they are not believing, they are becoming responsible for the information that they have, but they become more responsible because they have not believed it. So a disciple grows closer to God when he does believe, but a disciple who does not believe grows further from God because the more he knows about God and the more he chooses not to believe, the more responsible he is for that choice. So we have believers growing in intimate fellowship with Christ. How? By loving one another. It's not by uh, studying intensely. It's simply by resting in Jesus Christ's love and sharing that with brothers. Uh, and these brothers are other Christians. If you, uh, if you try to practice this with non-Christians, you'll be emptied very fast because uh, there's not the love of Christ flowing through them as well. Um, it will be flowing only one direction. It won't be intimate fellowship. It will be pouring yourself out, which is something that we have enough love in us to do because we don't fill ourselves with love, but Jesus fills us with love. So we do have love enough to share with unbelievers, but this kind of love that he's talking about is about intimate fellowship. So the purpose of this love that we are to have for the brothers is so that we can maintain unity within the body. There can't be any unity with believers and unbelievers. So we know that this command is to believers because we are all part of that one body. It says, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which he lacked, that is to weaker members and to stronger members, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individual members of it. So notice when, when a member of the Christian body, the body of Christ, suffers or is honored, we are to have the same response with it, that we are not glorying in ourselves, but we are glorying in Christ when we honor someone else or when we suffer with someone else. Uh, we are also brothers because we are born of God. So we are in the one body of God, though we might look different in our roles. Uh, we are all part of the body of Christ, but we are born ones, as John refers to us, technia. We are born ones of God, and as the children of God, we share a family relationship. We are brothers, one another. So it says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So this is important because in the Old Testament, the sons of God refer to only two different things, angels, 99% of the time, and Adam because Adam was a direct creation of God, having no father except for God. 
angels were created directly by God. They don't have children themselves. So they are direct creations of God. So when it says that we are children of God, that means we are a direct creation of him. And that is not our nature through Adam. That is our nature through Christ. That when we are born again of Christ, we become children of God because we are a direct creation of him in our new nature. Okay, so Janet asks the question, how about other care to grow in maturity in God's word, but others just wanted sharing their experience repeatedly? It's difficult. Yeah, there's, um, if I understand your question, there's a time and a place for, for sharing your experiences, but we should be learning from our experiences and growing through them. Uh, if it's continually the same experience being rehashed again and again, uh, it's obvious that there's not growth there. Uh, there should be steady and consistent growth in a healthy Christian's life. So one way that we can come alongside each other is to encourage, uh, to encourage believers to rest in God, to trust in uh, God's promises, and to understand our life situations through a biblical perspective. Uh, there's a lot of tendency to try to understand our situation not from the Bible, but from emotion, uh, from fleshly emotion, meaning that we don't have the mind of Christ about our own situations a lot of times. So if a Christian is suffering in that way, encourage them to search the scriptures for answers to conform to what God has to say about their situation, uh, but continue to love them through that. Um, it can be very frustrating to deal with uh, someone who just can't get over the same problem again and again. Uh, I like to think of when God was, uh, or when Abraham was asking God uh, if he would spare Sodom and Gomorrah. God never got frustrated with the, I think it was eight or nine times that Abraham asked a slightly different question. Um, God was very patient with Abraham. Uh, so I think if we want to emulate Christ, we want to have the same kind of patience. Uh, the same when Christ um, told his disciples, or I can't remember who he was talking to, it might have been the Pharisees, no, it was disciples, how many times you should forgive someone. And he says, is it seven times? And Christ says, no, it's 70 times seven times, meaning essentially in, in a Hebrew uh, idiom, uh, endlessly, like you should always be ready to forgive. And we forgive because we've been forgiven so much. Um, when we are unwilling to forgive a brother um, for anything, even if they don't ask for it or don't deserve it in our estimation, we forget that we have been forgiven for things that, uh, that we, we couldn't imagine being forgiven for, but by the blood of Christ. So always be ready to forgive because you've been forgiven so much. Uh, and that's one way we show love to our brothers. And that's one way that the world really doesn't understand love that uh, the world thinks you have to protect yourself at all costs. Well, God protects us at all costs. We are able to forgive without end because he holds us secure. Okay, did I read this one? Yes, I did. All right, then there is familial love, that is love of a family member. So just like a brother or a sister loves, and I was just talking about this this last weekend because it was my sister's wedding. 
how much, uh, I mean, I, I have friends, they kind of come and go throughout life. I see them and I can still talk to them, but family are really the ones that stick with you through thick and thin. They're always there. Um, you might fight, but the conversation can always end with, I'm annoyed right now. I'm angry, but I love you. There's never that doubt of, of uh, do I love you? It's always there, even in the hardest situations, you can say, I love you. So this is what it is like to be an intimate fellowship in God's family, is having this love from the Father that flows out to others in the community, to others in the community of Christ. So it says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So this love that binds us together is not visible to the outside world. They don't understand it. They can't comprehend it. And they might look at it and say, yes, I understand that. But it's it's about as, as uh, it's one of those things where you don't understand it, but you can think you do, if that makes any sense. Like when I was about eight years old, I went to a club called Awana where you learn Bible verses. And my, uh, my Bible teacher told me that we can't understand eternity. We can't comprehend it. And I very quickly thought about it. I'm like, I know what eternity means. I can comprehend it. So I told her I can. <laughs> and she just laughed at me. Um, but that's kind of what this is, is... Uh, like you can see in First Corinthians 2, the natural mind simply cannot comprehend spiritual things because it is not understanding it through the spirit. Now he can recognize that it's there, but he can't see how it's different. Um, he can't analyze it and understand it. Uh, he doesn't have the faculties to do so. Like uh, think about the, the uh, spectrum of light where we've got everywhere from infrared to ultraviolet that we can see on the color waves. But there are colors that we can't see beyond those. Our eyes are not capable of interpreting those wavelengths as color. What the spirit does is it interprets wavelengths of color that the natural mind cannot. Uh, having a spiritual mind gives you access to organs that are spiritual. Um, it lets you see, hear, taste, smell, understand spiritual things that are of God, that a natural mind cannot. They are dead to those things. And that's that requires intimate fellowship because although you can have those organs, if you've never opened your eyes, if you've never been quiet to hear, um, you'll miss it. You'll, you'll continue to use just your natural organs and think that's all there is in Christ, but that's not true. There's so much more. Um, and I think we'll give, get a very physical sense of that when we are face-to-face -face with Christ. Like Paul said, right now we see as though through a glass darkly. Um, and although those are spiritual eyes that we get to see with now, it's still just a dim understanding compared to what we will have when we are in our um, new perfected bodies. But this is the love that we have for one another that the world cannot comprehend. And this is against the world, 
meaning the cosmos system. That is the system of the world that is ruled by Satan, not the people in the world that we are to love, to love in order to bring them to Christ. But this is against the system of the world that is against the Christian. It says, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. So this is Jesus Christ again, praying to God the Father, right after he said, I've kept them. And do you remember at the very beginning of 1 John verses 1 through 4, where John says that he says these things so that his joy may be complete? He's talking about intimate fellowship. He is training the body how to be intimate with one another so that his joy might be complete. And he's doing that because that is the example that Jesus Christ gave him. When he recorded this prayer, he interpreted that information for himself as well, that when there is intimate fellowship, intimate love between believers, there is joy made more complete. So it says that they may have my joy made full in themselves, that is through fellowship in him. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So this again is speaking of the new nature in a Christian. Remember, a Christian has two natures, the nature of Adam, the sin nature, and the nature of the last Adam, Christ. So we are not of this world because the spirit that is born in us when we believe in Christ is not of this world in the same way that Jesus Christ is not of this world, that uh, he is destined for heaven just as we are destined for heaven. And the world hates that. There is animosity against Christians because of that new nature living in them and that that new nature is contradictory to the world system. The world can't understand it. The world wants to spit it out. Uh, it, it is uncomfortable like a, like a grain of sand in an oyster. Uh, it creates a pearl, uh, but the oyster wants to get rid of it. It doesn't like that grain of sand inside of it. So just imagine yourself becoming a pearl uh, as a grain of sand stuck in an oyster. That is what it is like to live in this world that is against Christians. Um, we are creating rewards uh, in heaven through resting in the spirit. But uh, this is going to be John's conclusion. This isn't one of our verses tonight, but it will be next week. Um, so John's conclusion is, don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Uh, this shouldn't surprise us. We are not part of the world. In fact, if the world loves us, if the world says, oh, you're doing great, this should give us pause. This should make us worry. Um, the world should be against us. Um, and that's not because we are animus, we have animus against them. We shouldn't be antagonistic in the culture, but we should be living counterculturally. We shouldn't be that comfortable in the world because this is not our home. We should always have that sense of discomfort here, um, but a longing for our home in heaven. All right, so here I have a quote, and this is by Lewis Chafer. Uh, and this is about the difference between uh, a believer and a non-believer in relation to the cosmos system, the world system. So he says, it is generally recognized that the Christian faces 
three opposing forces, which are sources of evil. So we've talked about those. That's cosmos, world, the flesh, and the devil. So the world and the flesh and the devil are three opposing forces, which are sources of evil towards the Christian. And that when he was in his unregenerate state, that means before we were saved, before we were born again, those forces were in no way arrayed against him. They were not our enemies when we were not born again. But when we became born again, the world, the flesh, and the devil became our enemies. For he was then a part of the cosmos world. He was restricted in his being to the flesh, and he was under the dominion of Satan. So these were our positions as unregenerate. Now we are citizens of heaven. We are not restricted to the flesh, but given access to the spirit, that we can live in the spirit, and we are under the dominion of Christ. So our position has changed. And because our position has changed, the world that used to be our friend is now against us. The world that used to want to quietly die together with us, now that we have life, it wants to kill us. So it says, conscience and social ideals may have made their feeble demands upon him. That means an unregenerate man living in an unregenerate world who is friends with the world, the flesh, and the devil, he might be able to understand through a good conscience that uh, it is better to do good than to do bad. Uh, but these are usually social constructs. From society to society, the ideas of morals and ethics are different. But God's ethics and God's morals are of a higher class. They are perfect. They are not uh, didactical, meaning that a culture doesn't create them by consensus. They are true ethics and true morals. So the unregenerate world can come to a consensus of what they agree is good and what they agree is bad. But that's why we end up with things like the Holocaust. Germany agreed that it was good to kill the, to kill the Jews. Um, this is what happens when the world is allowed to be the arbiter of good and evil. Uh, so he says, but he knew little. In his conscience and in his social ideals, he knew little, if anything, of the increasing conflict which besets the child of God. So as a child of God, our conflict with the world should grow stronger and stronger as we grow stronger and stronger in Christ. Remember, the world killed Jesus Christ. The greatest, most perfect man who has ever lived on this earth, the God-man, the world hated so much and despised so much that they killed him. Uh, if we are living as friends with the world, we are not doing better than Jesus Christ. We are actually, uh, we, should, we should be worried if the world is too comfortable of a place. So again, here's our little chart on the three enemies that the Christian faces. That is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, these are not our friends, but they were our friends when we were unregenerate. We shouldn't regret. We shouldn't look back. Uh, these are dying entities. The world is destined to be burned. The flesh is destined for the grave, and the devil is destined for the lake of fire. Uh, we don't want to be friends with these items. 
All right, our last verse tonight is an example, and this is a, an analogy of un or of natural brotherly animosity of um, Cain and Abel. So we as Christian brothers are not natural brothers, we are spiritual brothers. But Cain and Abel were natural brothers who were spiritual enemies. So let's read this verse. Um, it says, not as Cain, who was of the devil, uh, or who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. So this gives us a very interesting interpretation of uh, Genesis 4.8, that Cain slew his brother because Cain's deeds were evil, and Abel's deeds were righteous. Now, I don't think the evil deed that is being spoken of here is the murder of Abel, because this is the reason he murdered his brother, was because of his evil deeds. Not the murder of Abel was an evil deed. It was an evil deed. But John considers the deed of Cain in his sacrifice to have been an evil deed. But the deed of Abel in his sacrifice to be a righteous deed. And because Cain's sacrifice was evil, so his actions towards his brother were evil. Uh, let's look at that uh, account and try to understand that a bit better. So here we have the analogy of natural brothers, Cain and Abel. It says, now the man, that is Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So both of them have works of their hands. Uh, Abel tends the flocks, and Cain tills the ground. Uh, Abel happens to have his, uh, the works of his hand as the prescribed sacrifice. Cain, rather than interpreting through God's word, where God shows Adam and Eve that they need a covering for their sin by blood sacrifice, he looks at Abel, sees Abel's sphere of work being used as a sacrifice, and says, well, my sphere of work should be used as a sacrifice then. So rather than trusting God's word, rather than coming to God on the grounds that God gave him to come, um, he says, no, but instead I will bring a sacrifice of my own works. So in verse 3 we read, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Now this is what John is calling an evil deed. Cain's evil deed was bringing a bad sacrifice to the Lord. We can think of this as well uh, when we get to I believe it's the book of Exodus, where uh, the two sons of Aaron bring a sacrifice of strange fire before the Lord, that God had prescribed the sacrifices required. And uh, I think it was Phineas and his brother, they brought sacrifices that the Lord had not commanded. They decided what the sacrifice would be. And this was evil. So it says, 
how can Cain offer up blood since his work is on the ground? Uh, he can ask his brother for a lamb. Simple answer. Uh, yeah, I'm sure Abel, being a righteous man, would have gladly shared his uh, his lambs with with Cain. Um, that's brotherly love we share with one another. We we recognize that it is not about the works of our hands. Abel was able to bring a sacrifice of the sheep, realizing that he didn't grow the sheep. He didn't make the sheep. God made the sheep. That's why Christians, when they tithe, they recognize that this money that I'm giving isn't money that I made. It's not money that I created. It's not anything by my own merit. Uh, a Christian, in fact, no human can make any money without the breath of life that God gave them. Uh, so all things are back to God's glory. So when Abel offered his sacrifice of a lamb, he didn't do it because it was the works of his hands. He did it in recognition that he was sinful, and this was this, the, uh, the sacrifice that God prescribed for his sins so that he could uh, come before the Lord with a proper sacrifice. Cain misinterpreted this, but it doesn't seem that Cain misinterpreted this without, uh, without sufficient evidence. He had everything pointing towards God calls for blood sacrifice. Um, how do I bring him blood sacrifice? Um, but instead he chose to say, Abel gets to offer the works of his hands, so do I. Uh, this was evil, not because it was... Um, well, simply because it was not how God intended it to be. It was not learning the lesson uh, that God intended. And that, that is very significant because what the sacrifice pointed to was Christ. The sacrifice pointed towards the Savior that would come. Cain and Abel didn't know that at this point, but they had a responsibility to follow God's words. Eve had been given God's words, and she didn't hold on to them uh, carefully. She allowed herself to reinterpret God's words and add meaning into it that wasn't there. And this was a stumbling block for her that Satan got a foothold and was able to trick her because she didn't have enough trust in God's words, that what he said he meant. The same thing is happening here. Cain doesn't have trust in God's words. He's trying to reinterpret for his own situation. He's looking for loopholes. Um, this is dangerous. We don't look for loopholes in God's word. We rest in God's word. We trust that uh, he knows what he's doing. He's God. He can see the beginning from the end. Uh, I was reading Psalm 16 with, with my prayer group here on Wednesday, and we read about David uh, saying that the Lord draws the lines of his life, that from uh, beginning to end, God knows and God cares, and that at the end of the line, there is joy in the presence of Christ. Uh, so we want to rest knowing that at the end, there is joy in the presence of Christ. But Cain did not do that. Uh, so it says, Abel, on his part, also brought from the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. And that wasn't because it was the work of Abel's hands, but because that was the sacrifice the Lord prescribed. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now this 
is not surprising, um, but it shows Cain's heart. When God had no regard for his offering, rather than realizing that he did wrong and uh, coming to the Lord, confessing his sin and asking for forgiveness and then going and offering a proper sacrifice, what he does is he becomes angry with the one whom God did accept. He becomes angry with the righteous because of his own unrighteousness. Now, hopefully at this point, you can see where we're, where we're leading back into John's argument that the unrighteous world will hate the righteous deeds of the Christians because they are righteous, not because the Christian is doing wrong, but because the Christian is doing right. So God warns Cain. He says, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? God's not asking this because he doesn't know. God's trying to get Cain to understand. He's using questions, just like Janet's husband, Charlie, teaches by asking questions. Um, so he says, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? God wants Cain to think about what he's doing. He says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? God's saying revenge is not the way to fix your situation. Doing the right thing bringing the proper sacrifice, that is the way to have your countenance lifted. So for the Christian, doing more works in your own hands is only going to lead to more pain and suffering. But accepting the proper sacrifice, Jesus Christ, and resting in that, that will lift your countenance. So, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. He says, Sin is trying to gain a foothold over you. It's trying to destroy your life. And if you don't watch out, if you take your eyes off of me, it's going to get you. And unfortunately, it does. Um, so in verse 8, it says, Cain told Abel, his brother. So Cain actually goes and discusses this with Abel. He talks about probably his anger with um, Abel in righteousness. And we don't hear any of the words of Abel. Uh, anything he might have said to Cain, it seems Cain's heart was made up before he went and talked to Abel. So it says, Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Again, God knows where he is, but he's trying to get Cain to think about, he's trying to say, here's one dot, here's another, can you connect the line? Do you see how this action led to this action? He's teaching. Um, and he says, um, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So he asks God a question now. Rather than answering in humility, he turns it back to God and says, why don't you tell me? Am I my brother's keeper? Is that my responsibility? So he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now this becomes the first murder. Um, in all of history, becomes the first violence done towards another human being. And this blood from the very beginning cries out to the Lord, and this is the blood that he will come to avenge um, when he strikes down the Antichrist and his armies. Um, this is the conquering over death that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, that death is the last enemy because it was the first enemy. But for us, um, we are enemies, or we are behind enemy lines 
Um, Proverbs 29.10 says, men of bloodshed hate, blameless, hate the blameless, but the upright are concerned for his life. So men who are murderous, like Cain, and remember Jesus Christ interprets hatred in one's heart as murder. Uh, men of bloodshed hate the blameless. Uh, this again points right back to Genesis 4.8, where Cain despised Abel because of Abel's righteousness. So men who are bloodthirsty hate those who are upstanding. But we instead, it says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Remember, we are living in an enemy world. We shouldn't be surprised if we are undergoing tribulations. In fact, we will undergo tribulations as, uh, as the enemies of Satan, and Satan is the ruler of this world. But we will be saved from the great tribulation, which is the wrath of God. We will not endure the wrath of God, but we will endure the wrath of Satan. But God will sustain us through it entirely. Uh, Satan will not and cannot sustain mankind, his men, through the wrath of God. But God can sustain us through Satan's wrath because it is pitiful and weak next to God's protecting power. So he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. God allows this to test us so that he can teach us, so that we can grow in him. If you are not encountering any trials, you should be wondering why God's not teaching you anything. Um, so he says, come upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. So he says, why are you considering this strange? This is, you're, you're told that this is going to happen. It says, but to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. So we suffer together with Christ so that we can rejoice together with Christ. First Corinthians three, when it talks about uh, our, our, uh, our, what is that? The, the judgment seat that we will, um, be judged for our rewards. It says some of our rewards will be burned up, but others made of gold, silver, and precious stones, uh, those will be our glory and those will be our rejoicing. Um, and suffering, suffering together with Christ is one of the crowns that we will have, the martyr's crown. Uh, so we suffer together with Christ. It's Revelation 2.10, I believe. Uh, we glory in our suffering. So we not just rejoice, but we glory. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, that means if we are blasphemed, if we are slandered, if we are spoken against for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Remember, we want to be like Abel. We don't want to be like Cain. Um, if Cain hates us, that's not a bad thing. Uh, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. It says, don't be a Cain, be an Abel. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, 
but is to glorify God in this name. So God doesn't punish us for doing bad things. He allows bad things to happen to good people because we are living in Satan's world. We are not living in his presence. And this is uh, essentially just a hazard of our current condition being on the earth. Uh, but this is not supposed to be something that we are ashamed of. Think of Job. Uh, Job's friends told him, what did you do wrong? You should be ashamed. You must have sinned. And that's why God is punishing you. And Job tells them, don't you know anything of the Lord? Um, the Lord is just. The Lord is uh, merciful and the Lord is kind. Uh, granted, his situation continues to get worse and worse until God has to chastise him a bit. But God affirms that he is not one who seeks our suffering, but he allows suffering so that we might, uh, so that we might grow closer to him. If we had no suffering in this world, we might be very tempted to embrace this world. We might be very tempted to, uh, to be comfortable in this world. We shouldn't be comfortable here. Uh, we should be comfortable in heaven. Uh, so it says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed but is to glorify God in this name. We ought to glorify God when we endure suffering. Uh, because uh, this is the situation of the unbeliever. It says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So this is saying, for now, we endure the wrath of Satan. This is allowed on us for a time. But if this is allowed, how much worse will be what is allowed against the unbeliever? God loves us. God keeps us. Uh, we are judged. We are sifted. We are tested during this time. But he does so in love. He never gives us any trial more than we can withstand but he will give trials more than are withstandable to the unbelievers during the time of the tribulation. Uh, so we do not endure, we do not undergo that tribulation, uh, but we do undergo tribulations during this age. And they will undergo it because they do not obey the gospel of God. We are tested to see how well we obey uh, the, the rule of life, which is to love one another and to love God they will be tested against their failure to trust the gospel of God. And it says, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinners? Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to the faithful creator in doing what is right. We trust God. We rest on his promises. We have no merits of our own to get into heaven on. The only good works that will be counted as rewards to us are those good works which the Holy Spirit did through us when we were resting and yielding to the Spirit. Uh, the world will have no such, uh, no, no such merits to their account. They will undergo uh, the tribulation from Jesus Christ. And in verse 30, uh, John, oh, this is back to John, uh, chapter 8, 30 to 32, our last verse for tonight. It says, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. 
the truth, but that's a title. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Jesus is saying, you have believed in me. He's talking to a group of Jews that came to believe in his word. And he's saying, yes, you've believed in me, but this isn't the end of your walk. This secures your final destiny, but it doesn't mean you're done. Continue in faith, continue to rest in me, continue to trust, and you will be disciples. And as disciples, we learn from him. We study God's word to know what his will is and what his word is, and we pray in response to him. Uh, this is how we communicate with God. And through this, by, by acting as disciples, we come to know the truth, and the truth sets us free. Uh, John 16, a couple chapters later, he promises the Holy Spirit, and it says that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to rest in the Spirit, to understand and interpret through the Word of God as led by the Holy Spirit. So that's what we want to be doing um, as Christians. We want to rest in faith, because when we rest in faith, uh, there is no flaming dart of the evil one that can down us. Uh, we are protected by the shield of faith. So with that... Uh, we are done with this lesson, and we look forward to next week. Uh, let me pray in closing. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the precious gift of your Son. Uh, we thank you that his blood covers all of our sins, past, present, and future. We pray that we not uh, take this gift for granted. We pray that we grow in intimate fellowship with one another. We pray that you teach us how to love one another, even when it seems difficult, recognizing how much we have been forgiven. Uh, let us forgive our brothers easily and before they even ask. Uh, we want to be about your business. We want to be about your work on this earth. We want to understand your will and determine before we know it to follow it, to do that will, to be faithful to you. Uh, and we know that it is by your power that we have the ability to be faithful. Uh, we are in a world that is antagonistic towards us. Let us not be antagonistic back towards it, but not forget to be countercultural. Uh, we live for a heavenly purpose. Uh, let us live even now as if we are in the heavenlies with Christ. So Lord, uh, we ask a blessing on those who have come this evening and those who have not been able to come. Uh, for Lisa and her daughter, we, we offer you praise for, uh, for some good news this week in certain restored aspects of their relationship. We pray that you continue to bless that relationship and to draw uh, Lisa's daughter closer. Lord, we pray for Janet and Charlie. Uh, we pray for Janet's ministry in Hong Kong and uh, to the Filipinos. We pray also for Charlie's uh, ministry online at the Layman's Online International Seminary, but we pray that they might be able to do their ministry and to serve you uh, together, that they might be physically uh, in the same place, in the same location. We pray this, Lord. Uh, we also pray for Nita and her uh, job. We, we pray for, uh, for patience and kindness from her employers. 
um, and also uh, much needed rest and, and reprieve from the difficulties of work. Lord, we pray all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.